Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Welcome to the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. We hope you find this episode helpful and informative. And of course, we have other episodes on our Podbean podcast page and our YouTube page for the video version. And our website has a host of other resources at multifaithmatters.org. And we encourage you to stop by there. And of course, uh, keep in mind that we are a nonprofit organization. And if you find the website and the work of Multi-Faith Matters helpful, as we try to tackle some of the most important social and cultural issues of our day as informed by religion, and as we try to uh, model respectful conversations through deep religious difference, if you find all of that helpful and would like to help support this work, uh, please consider visiting our patrons page where you can be a regular online supporter through as little as one, three, or $5 a month. Or, of course, uh, our, you can make a one-time donation through uh, our website, again, at multifaithmatters.org. Hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thank you for watching and listening. Welcome to the podcast for Multifaith Matters. We hope you find this episode helpful and informative. And, of course, we have other episodes on our Podbean podcast page and our YouTube page for the video version. And our website has a host of other resources at multifaithmatters.org, and we encourage you to stop by there. And of course, uh, keep in mind that we are a nonprofit organization, and if you find the website and the work of Multifaith Matters helpful, as we try to tackle some of the most important social and cultural issues of our day as informed by religion, and as we try to uh, model respectful conversations through deep religious difference, if you find all of that helpful and would like to help support this work, uh, please consider visiting our patrons page where you can be a regular online supporter through as little as one, three, or five dollars a month. Or, of course, uh, our, you can make a one time donation through uh, our website again at multifaithmatters.org. Hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thank you for watching and listening. Well, this is the podcast for Multifaith Matters, and uh, I am privileged to have as return guests Mark V. Brettler and Amy Jo Levine. And I'm going to not that they need an introduction. They're very well known in a variety of circles, including evangelical circles, but I'll go ahead and read uh, just a little bit of their bios to introduce them. Mark Brettler is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Duke University. He's the author of many books, including The Creation of History in Ancient Israel and How to Read the Jewish Bible, and he comes to us from Jerusalem today. Amy Jill Levine, I'm going to go by AJ, I understand is your preferred way to go, is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies and Mary Jan Worthen Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Department of Jewish Studies. She's the author of many books, including The Misunderstood Jew and Short Stories by Jesus. This is their, as I said, this is their second appearance on the podcast. Previously, we discussed uh, their book, The Bible With and Without Jesus, and today we're going to continue that conversation as we look at uh, various passages in the Hebrew Bible, which are understood by Christians in one way, and uh, we are not often aware of how uh, there have been a variety of different ways of understanding that uh, by Jews uh, before and even during the time of the rise of Christianity. So welcome to both of you back to the program. Thank you. I, I have to put in a correction. Okay. Um, so in, in August, I retired from Vanderbilt. Oh my so goodness, my I'm sorry. <clears throat> All of my fancy titles there are, are all followed by Emerita. Okay. Uh, and, I, right, and I am currently the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. Ah, well, thank you for the correction. I appreciate that. I will update that in the, the bio and the program notes. So thank you so much. Makes Hartford happy. So good. <laughs> um, we're going to kind of, this will be kind of a part two uh, looking at some of the, the texts that you two talk about in that book. But um, as I reapproached you via email to kind of set this up, I'm also interested in connecting it to the problematic history, past and present, 
in the ways in which Christians have used the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament almost in a weaponized fashion uh, against the Jews. Can, can you, in general, speak to some of that as we kind of introduce the subject matter? Well, I guess I can start. Um, Mark and I tend to finish each other's sentences, so if, if he pops in, this, this should not be surprising. Um, it, one of the reasons we wrote the Bible with and without Jesus is because we saw an enormous amount of disrespect for other people's ways of reading the text, and it goes both ways. So Christians would say to us, and, and I'm pretty sure to Mark as well, you know, if you just read Isaiah 53 carefully, you would see that it points to Jesus. And if you just read the creation narrative carefully, you would see that we are all entrenched in sin and we need Jesus to get us out of this broken, fragmented, alienated human condition. Um, and on the other hand, I've heard uh, friends in my synagogue say, how can Christians possibly see the Trinity in Genesis? How can they possibly see Jesus of Nazareth and Isaiah? Why would Isaiah make a comment about somebody who lived like 500 years later? So from disrespect, then it's a very easy step towards supersession and then demonization. So one of the things that we tried to do, both with the Jewish annotated New Testament, which we edited, and the Bible with and without Jesus, is to show some respect for somebody else's tradition. Um, nothing says you have to agree with it all, but at least you ought to know something about it and you ought to see the logic behind it. So it's not our, the Christian tradition is not our tradition. Mark and I are both happily Jewish, uh, but we can see some beauty there and we can see some truth there. And we hope that Christians will see the same thing in the way Jews read the text. To pick up on that, the respect is really important in both directions. So it is inevitable that Christians are going to be familiar with what we would call, typically call the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Uh, but it is not so typical for Jews to be familiar with the New Testament, because after all, the Old Testament is part of the Christian canon, but the New Testament is not part of the Jewish canon. So something that we're also very much trying to do, because we believe that respect can only be gained once you're familiar with the traditions of the other, is to really increase the literacy uh, of the New Testament among the Jewish community. And that is a part of our goal. And both the books that the, the book that we have co-edited and the book that we more recently wrote together. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you uh, prior and also in this conversation in, uh, in living out that, that respectful way of trying to increase understanding as we relate to one another. Uh, with that as background and kind of an introduction, let, let's look at some specific texts. And we had had some email exchanges in, in setting up this podcast conversation. And Mark, you had expressed an interest in talking about um, some passages in the beginning of Genesis and also Isaiah 52 and 53 with the suffering servant. I will say at the beginning, um, I am fascinated by Jewish understandings of the uh, early chapters of Genesis. Uh, I, I started, you know, with an interest in the creation evolution controversy, but there's a lot wrapped up for Christians theologically in this understanding of a fall and we are perplexed many times when we have conversations with our Jewish friends that they don't see that there. But, but I'm, I think this goes back for us to kind of um, an Augustinian understanding of a reading of Paul in Romans 5. And uh, there are other options even for Christians beyond Augustine in that area. So maybe conversations with our Jewish friends can help us understand that. Can, can you share a little bit about that? Well, first, let me really express my appreciation for the way in which you phrased the question, where you talked about Jewish interpretations, and I very clearly heard an S at the end of that word, with a real recognition that there is not a single Jewish interpretation, pretty much on any verse or any word uh, in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that you have the same black and white words often, and just understood in such different ways by the different traditions. Although something we may have an opportunity to talk about is they're actually not always, I should have corrected myself the same black and white words because Jews are typically reading the text in Hebrew while Christians might very well be reading the text in Greek in Latin or some translation in which the Greek and, which the Greek and the Latin have influenced. So there, let's just start with something that is ambiguous at the beginning of the Bible, where in 
Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you have to use this Hebrew, ter for a Hebrew term, Ruach Elohim, Merachefet al Hamayim. Now, this Hebrew word Ruach means both wind and spirit. And Elohim typically means God, but biblical Hebrew has no easy way of expressing the grammatical superlative, something that would end with an EST in English. So that sometimes God's name is used to express a superlative. So here we have a real ambiguity. Does Ruach in that verse mean wind or spirit? Does Elohim in that verse mean from God, or does it mean great? And are we talking about, and this would be probably a more predominant Jewish view, a great wind, or does it mean the spirit of God? And then do you want to go one step further and understand that spirit of God as part of the Trinity? Now, these are just two Hebrew words, mm -hmm. and these various possibilities are all your reasonable possibilities for what the words could mean. Something I would insist on, however, is that the, the Hebrew Bible, including the book of Genesis, meant something to the early Jewish community before the rise of Jesus in the first century of the Common Era. And certainly, when it was first written and understood, the Jewish community was not understanding it as part of a trinity, and the Jewish community consider, continues to not understanding it as part of a, as part of a, tr a trinity, because that simply is not part of fundamental Jewish belief. While it is perfectly natural for people within a Christian community to understand this ruach as a spirit rather than as a physical wind. And thus already from the second verse of the Bible, you see the way in which you have the same words understood in fundamentally different ways by the different communities. We'll come to the fall of man, but uh, AJ, you must have something to add to that one. <laughs> Well, we can already see the, the distinctions when we start looking at how Jews translated the Hebrew well before Christians came on the scene. So the Septuagint, which is this early Greek translation of Torah, and then the other books were added on in Greek, um, takes this Ruach Elohim, which could be just a mighty wind. Like we, it, the, In English, we sometimes use the term God awful, which sounds like really awful, but it means like God amazingly awesome, right? God awful. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of adjectival force. Um, it comes into Greek as panoima theu, which really does mean the spirit of God. Because theu in Greek tends to be of God and it tends not to have that adjectival force. So already we're seeing Jews translating this thing and saying, yeah, there's a spirit of God that's manifest in the world. Does that mean it's a trinity? No, but it's one of the multiple ways that God gets God's messages from where God is to us whether it's from an angel or from a prophet or from a vision or whatever, this is another way that Jews had of understanding that divine sense of communication. Um, whenever you translate, something's going to get added in that's not in the original, something's going to get dropped out. So one of the reasons that Jews and Christians today have these, these um, difficulties is because the Jews are operating from the Hebrew. And although Christians think they're reading the Hebrew Bible, they're reading it through those Greek filters. We therefore misunderstand each other because we don't understand the basic texts from which we are working or the basic languages that we are translating. I think for evangelicals in particular, I, I don't think we're aware of the filters. We assume that we're the ones without the glasses. Everybody else. Because oh, it came in from the King James version. Right. There's no reason to do the Hebrew. <laughs> right, Greek. right. <laughs> you all wear glasses. That's right. Some of us, some of us are used to them. Uh, some of us are not, but we're all wearing glasses. Yeah, I'm cheating. I have contact lenses on, but I'm with you. Yeah. I'd like to think that we all have progressive lenses. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Mark, did you want to sure. comment further on the? On the yeah, well, uh, if, I think we're good on these two words. Right. Let's move to a much more complicated issue, mm. namely the fall of man. And let and me when. introduce. I'm going to introduce it by the fall of humanity, okay? I'm going to introduce this by saying this is why I chose the fall of man, is that very often when you 
reading this in English and Christian Bibles, you're going to see that somewhere in Genesis chapters two or three, you're going to have that nice little title in the middle, typically AJ, full of man, not full of man. You got to grant me that one. That's why I chose it. Okay. So first of all, it's really, really important to realize that those little titles, which in a sense are very, very helpful because they frame the way in which you read something are not part of the text. They're not part of the text in Hebrew. They're not part of the text in Greek. They're not part of the text in Latin. This has become a tradition in biblical translations. And in some ways, it's a wonderful idea because it helps you decide what the following story is about. And it's a wonderful idea if it gets it right. It's a problematic idea if it does not necessarily gets, get it, gets it right or if it chooses one of several ways in which a story could be read and prioritizes that particular way of reading. So I'll just point out that by and large, Jewish Bibles do not have these titles. But if there were to be such titles in an English Jewish Bible, it would be the Garden of Eden story. It would not be the fall of man. And that shapes the story in a very different, much broader way. And that is important to realize. So titles really matter. The second thing that I'd like to say as a way of introduction is that when you read a Bible, whether you're reading from the first five books from a Torah scroll, or whether you're reading of the all 24 books, because that's the traditional number that you have in Judaism, all the words, with a couple of exceptions, exceptions to everything, right? But all the words with few exceptions are the same size. But what different religious traditions do, and in this case, we're talking specifically about Judaism and Christianity, it is as if they make certain verses, certain words, or certain chapters or units in a larger font size, and others in a very small font size. So I would just point out that within Judaism, the story in Genesis chapters two and three, which was so incredibly significant in Christianity from the very earliest Christianity or what we might even call pre-Christianity. Let's not get into that whole issue of when this thing, when this religion really started and how, but already in the writings of Paul. You know, certainly earlier than the Gospels, right? That's as early as you're going to get. Genesis chapters two and three are really quite significant. Okay, within Judaism, they're important if you look at how and where they're quoted in rabbinic tradition, but they are not proportionately as important as they are within Christianity. So those are the first two points that I make. And then let me come to the term fall of man, I sort of know where AJ is going to go. She will in a few minutes give the history of this particular term as it came in from the Latin's understanding of the Greek. But the term fall from, let's say, the Hebrew root yarad never appears in these chapters. So there's no self-understanding of them within the Hebrew of the fall of man. And to the extent that the notion of the fall of man or the fall of men and women, the fall of humanity, suggests that as a result of certain things that the man and woman did in Genesis chapter three, everything is wrong with humans and that humans are born in a fundamentally fallen state namely with sin, as a result of eating from that fruits, which I remind you in the Bible is never called an apple, mm -hmm. but eating of that particular fruit, uh, that notion does not appear in the Hebrew Bible. And that notion is not central to Judaism. In Judaism, there are other changes which occurred as a result of eating from that particular tree. Maybe we'll get to those changes later but it did not result in a fundamental change of humanity where all humans who would subsequently be, be born were born with this primordial sin in them. 
I'm going to give one half exception to that. So there's a verse in Psalm 51, uh, and there are different verse numbers to the Psalm. So in my version, in Jewish Bibles, it's Psalm 51, verse 7. I'm going to guess that in English Bibles, it's Psalm 51, verse 5. That's Indeed, I was born with iniquity. With sin, my mother conceived me. Now that comes close. That's actually a good translation. That comes close to the Christian idea of original sin with one really important caveat. Namely, that verse in Psalms does not connect the fundamental notion that people are born inherently sinful with the Garden of Eden story. So that would mean that certain ideas that you have in Paul, for example, of Jesus being the anti-type of Adam can work very well in Christianity within certain notions that are related to fall of man and original sin, but are not going to work well within Jewish context. So AJ, I know from experience, you have lots of fill in here. <laughs> I was happy listening to you. Um, so we always read stuff in. Um, and then we, so what happens in Christianity? Uh, sin gets read in, although the word sin does not occur in these chapters. Fall gets read in. Um, Satan gets read in. It's not say it's just a snake. Serpent sounds better, but it's just a snake. Mm -hmm. um, well, Judaism reads stuff in too. So in the Jewish tradition, the reception history reads in repentance. So when you start looking at rabbinic commentary on this text, it's like, and Adam and Eve knew that they did something wrong and they repented and God showed them the doors to repentance. And just as Adam and Eve repented, so Adam and Eve's children will be shown the doors to repentance and so on. Um, so Jewish tradition does look at, you know, something went wrong here, but it's hardly a, um, a, a, the creation of a state of alienation passed on through sperm. That's Augustine's way of describing it. Mm -hmm. Augustine said that when Adam ate that, that fruit, his seed became vitiated, which is a nice way of saying his sperm got a negative DNA marker on it. Um, and then you're working your way to original sin. So we've got different interpretations of this text. And Judaism is kind of like an original opportunity. Um, now that you've been thrown out of the Garden of Eden, God goes with you. In fact, God makes them fur coats, which is a nice you know, kind of consolation prize. Um, so God goes with Adam and Eve when they leave. Uh, God is with Noah. God is with Abraham. God doesn't disappear. So a different, a different anthropology in that sense, where the general Christian view is it's a negative anthropology. It's a state of alienation between humanity and divinity when that's why you need Jesus to come and fix it. Um, since Jews don't begin with that primarily negative anthropology, we're just a little bit lower than the angels is the psalm saying. We don't need a Jesus to come in and fix it. When we make a mistake, when we sin, that's on us. And it's also on the community rather than on the individual to make sure that we, we stay to the correct path. Let me pick up on two things that AJ said. One of them is about what gets read in. And another thing that often gets read into the story is a particular blame for the woman. And this starts very early. This actually starts in Jewish tradition in the book of the wisdom of Ben Sirach, Ben Sirach, which is part of the Catholic canon, but not part of the Protestant canon. In other words, what the Protestants would call an apocryphal book which is the first source that we have, which really puts the blame specifically on Eve. But something that I would point out, and I know that you, the people listening are not going to believe me, so I just challenge you to uh, open up your Bibles, which is never really a bad idea, and to see what happens after um, God confronts the snake, the man, and the woman about eating being responsible for eating from the fruit. And in relation to the snake, the word aror, which means to be cursed, is used. The snake indeed is cursed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. In relation to the man, in verse 17, the earth is arurah, that's just the feminine form of to be, is cursed as a result of the man's eating. Now, so many people are convinced that there is a curse of, of the woman 
that you have in this particular chapter. But go ahead and read chapter 3, verse 16, as many times as he wants. And you'll see that that same word, aror or ara, is lacking in verse 16. So that's yet another example of what, uh, as a result of cultural and religious beliefs, we tend to read into the text. And something that uh, we encourage readers to do in each section of the book, the Bible with and without Jesus, is to try to read the text as carefully as possible without all of those later layers of tradition. Second uh, place I'd like to pick up on AJ concerns alienation. I don't think I've ever said this to you, AJ, uh, but picking under the understanding of Genesis chapters two and three, especially chapter three, as a story of alienation, I think is picking up very much on something in the text, but is picking up on something that is found in the original Hebrew text, but is transposing it in a remarkable way. Because until the people, until they have eaten from the tree, the man and the woman are originally called Ish and Isha, which sound like the male and the female grammatical form of the same word. They're related um, by grammar. It's like, you know, you must have cases of a Joseph marrying a Josephine or something like that. And everybody has a lot of fun with that. However, after all of the events transpire, they have new names. Their names are in Hebrew, Adam and Chava. They have nothing, they don't sound anything like each other. Or Adam and Eve in English, which also sound nothing like each other. And thus, two names, which were originally very similar, become two names, which are really quite different. I think even this new naming reflects a type of alienation. But I would say that in the biblical text, it becomes an alienation between uh, male and female. In, in Christian tradition, this theme of alienation is picked up on and it becomes a different type or an additional type of alienation, namely between humanity and God. I don't think so. Um, you know, and and that's, that's so typical, right? So it's, I think it's a different form of relationality. So at one point, and the, the words here are, are, are overloaded, but if you take the idea of the name as sounding similar, that's sort of like a natural connection. And what you have after this, this fruit incident is you still have connection, you don't have alienation, but it's connection that's not natural, it's connection that's voluntary. Um, it, it is only after this that the man knows this yada, right? Which is that strong sense of knowing. Um, it, it, only after the fruit do we have a sense of her desire for her husband. And we still have, or her man, and we still have this sense back in Genesis 2, which is actually what Jesus quotes in the Gospels, um, that a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, that, that devak is like glued to his wife. That doesn't go away. So I don't think it's alienation, but I do think it's another way of understanding the relationality. So the understanding of the relationality changes. And you can bring that back to the relationship between humanity and divinity. There's now an understanding of, oh, well, you know, God does get a little pissed when, when you don't do what God wants. But on the other hand, God says at, about at the fruit, like the day you eat of that fruit, motamutu, dying you will die, which I think basically means you'll drop dead. Um, and they don't. So the relationship has changed, but it's not one of alienation. It's one of greater awareness. And that goes for both humanity and divinity and man and woman. It's a greater awareness. Well, I'd still go with at least partial alienation, but we'll, we'll deal with this off there. <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your disagreement here uh, is interesting, and I would like to draw attention to it by way of a lesson for us evangelicals. In my religious community, um, we may 
argue and disagree with other denominations because our denomination has it right. But, but by and large, as evangelicals, we view the Bible very black and white. Uh, it, it's inerrant. It speaks with one voice. And therefore, you know, you, we just have to accept whatever the denomination, the pastor, the creed, whatever uh, happens to say. Um, but you're bringing a very different perspective. You're wrestling with the text. At times, you're even wrestling with God, um, which seems to me to be a much healthier, more realistic way of dealing with uh, the various voices that are at least in tension. I don't know, uh, evangelicals will be very uncomfortable with saying even in contradiction with one another, but it seems to me that that's, that's taking that, if we evangelicals really value the Bible, we need to wrestle with it more seriously as it is, rather than the theories and assumptions we bring to it. Would you say a little bit to that and how the, the Jewish community tends to approach the text itself in general? I think it's a hermeneutical question. Um, if you're reading the Old Testament, by which I mean the Christian Bible part one, uh, the standard lenses that you put on, going back to the glasses metaphor, um, is that everything has to point to Jesus. So therefore, of course, the Adam and Eve story reflects a break because it's a break that Jesus comes and repairs. And you can see that in Romans 5, you know, through Adam comes sin and death and through the Christ comes grace and life. Okay. Um, so it, it would make sense if you read as a Christian to have this very linear reading because it's all got to point to Jesus. Um, but if you're reading as a Jew, it doesn't have to point anywhere. Um, and Jews can happily disagree with each other. One of the reasons we can do this um, is because we're in the system as part of a people, like Americans are part of a people or Kenyans or Mexicans or Norwegians, whoever. Um, and at the end of the day, you can't throw us out. But if you get into a system by belief, by faith, which is the, the original um, getting into the Jesus movement, Mm -hmm. And you can see this in, in John 3, Jesus comments to Nicodemus, you know, you have to be born again or born anew by water and spirit. So your mommy and daddy don't count. Well, if you get into a system by belief, you don't want to argue too much because if you get in by belief, you get out by belief. Um, so there's not a whole lot of argument in Christianity for fear of being labeled a heretic. Um, Jews, it's not so much that we worry about that. We know what the parameters are, but within those parameters, we can disagree till the proverbial cows come home because at the end of the day, we're all still Jews. Mm. There's a certain freedom there. Yeah, there is. You really have the freedom because the only thing that Jews do agree on is what books comprise the Bible and what the text looks like. Okay, that's not a trivial unifying thing, especially in relation to other religious traditions. But to pick up on AJ's point, and to use a word that is sometimes used in biblical theology, there is no center to the Bible in Jewish tradition. Well, within Christian tradition, the center really is you know, the birth, the life, and the, the birth, the life, the death, and especially the resurrection of Jesus as the Christ. There's nothing comparable to that in Judaism, which is going to bring vast number of interpretations together and control them. And instead, at least from the rabbinic period, you very much had the notion that words can have many multiple contradictory meanings. Verses can have many multiple contradictory meanings. That is the whole structure of rabbinic midrash, the main rabbinic form of biblical commentary, where very often you'll have contradictory interpretations divided from one to another by with the phrase davar acher, another opinion. Now, someone outside of the Jewish tradition might very well want to say, well, you just offered me nine opinions. <laughs> Which one of them is correct? And, you know, the answer, you know, excuse me for being flip, is yes. <laughs> okay. In other words, there is a recognition that these are contradictory. But that same urge for finding the single one that is correct uh, is simply not there within Judaism. And I'll just express two different ways in which you can see this. I mean, one of them is in a later rabbinic expression that says, shiv'im panim latzharah. The Bible has 70 faces or facets of interpretation. And 
It does not go on to say, and if you're really smart, you know which one is the correct one, right? They are all equally there and legitimate in the same way as if you polish a gemstone, you're going to have multiple facets and each of them is going to look a little different, but each of them is part of that same gemstone. And the other way in which you see this is beginning with the structure of what is called the rabbinic Bible in the early 16th century. It was typical to have the biblical text surrounded by at least two commentaries. And those commentaries were from different geographical areas and they would often disagree one with another. Sometimes the later commentary actually called the earlier commentary foolish. Uh, you know, there's a certain type of debate. Uh, people think that in the Middle Ages, people were always more polite. That, that is really not always the case. But the structure of the rabbinic Bible, in which you have a biblical text surrounded by two contradictory interpretations of it, became something that is fundamentally Jewish. And thus, you know, there's a real sort of comfort within Judaism with the multiplicity of different interpretations for any particular passage. You do have something similar, even in, in hardcore evangelicalism. The text doesn't always mean one thing, because uh, if it did, the pastor's going to take out the same sermon every three years and, and just, you know, uh, here's my good Samaritan, we're going to do the same thing again. Um, so even with, with hardcore, you know, as my friend Rob would put it, deep water Christians, right, full body immersion out there in the pond. Um, if you read a text when you're six and you read it again when you're 60 and you don't get anything more profound out of it, something's gone dreadfully wrong. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't gone wrong with the text. So my, my friends who are part of that, that uh, very conservative Christian culture, um, they turn to the Bible in times of sorrow to look for solace. And they find it in places where they had never found it before. Uh, or they turn to it when, um, you know, when war breaks out. Say, so, well, what can I learn from this? And, and because of what's happening in their own life, they're able to see something in the text that they hadn't realized. So even if one has a sense that the Bible only has one meaning, well, they, but it doesn't. Because if it only meant one thing, then we're playing first century Bible land at best, and the, and the text has ceased to speak. Uh, so to say that the text only has one meaning in Christian context, I think is to put the Holy Spirit out of business. You know, let the spirit do its work and come up with, with what you need to hear on that particular day, and you'll find it. Mm -hmm. It's just a different way of going at it. Yeah. Very helpful reminders. Um, we've covered a lot of ground already, but we've got more that we'd like to, to look at. Um, Mark, you also wanted to talk a little bit about the suffering servant uh, in Isaiah 52 and 53. It's interesting that yesterday... I saw I, one of the pages that I follow on Facebook is a, a Christian who's a scientist and he does really great work. I think when he sticks in science, but when he starts swerving out of his lane is when the problems start coming. And he did a post recently on some carbon dating on a text for uh, Isaiah to try and prove that it was uh, pre-Christ. And therefore this is another argument for the suffering servant being uh, specific predictions about the coming of Christ, not that there's so much, so much by way of assumption in there and lack of awareness of differing interpretations and midrash and all of that. So I don't want to name any names, but uh, it, I found it a problematic <laughs> argument that is still being made by, by Christians today. Can you speak to Jewish considerations here? Yeah, I've read a lot about different Jewish and Christian interpretations of the suffering servant, probably close to 20 years ago, after the first edition of a book that I co-edited, um, which was the predecessor of the Jewish annotated New Testament. So it's called the Jewish Study Bible. I co-edited it with Adele Berlin, who's a professor emerita from University of Maryland. And I think that was still in the era when people were writing letters. And the letter that I got, I remember it was a woman, I don't remember from what state was, was one of those nice thank you notes saying, it never occurred to me that it is possible to read these chapters without Jesus in mind. Okay. And to me, it was a shocking letter because you know, for many years growing up until I was introduced to the New Testament, it never occurred to me that you need to read or can read these particular chapters with Jesus in mind. 
So I'd like to again point out a few things about these particular chapters. First of all, they don't, even though you have the theme of a suffering servant in several places in Isaiah uh, chapters 40 and following, especially 40 to 55, you never have a little title that says suffering servant. You do have a description of a servant who suffers, but you don't even have the Hebrew term suffering servant. So it's just important for all of us to be aware that even though this seems like such a natural idea, the term doesn't appear. And really even in scholarly literature, this term is relatively recent. Um, secondly, within Christian tradition, and this is really in some ways very similar to what I said earlier about Genesis chapters two and three, within Christian tradition, these are hugely important chapters. In other words, if you're going to have a Reader's Digest Bible for Christians, you're going to have to have some version of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 in there. Otherwise, your audience is not going to buy the book. Okay? Mm -hmm. Jewish Reader's Digest version? Yeah, you could skip those chapters. They're not especially important within Jewish tradition. So to go back to my font imagery from earlier, in Jewish tradition, you know, maybe it's a five-point font text. In Christian tradition, it is a 36 or 48 or 72. I mean, it's huge, right? Because it's really difficult to imagine Christianity um, without those particular texts because, and AJ will pick up on this, various possibilities in a couple of minutes, is, I mean, either the gospel writers or Jesus himself understood various events that were happening in relation to those particular texts. The so-called suffering servant texts provided a pattern for a description, especially of the passion narratives as they appear in various places. If I remember correctly, AJ, you'll correct me, not only in the gospels, but in various places throughout the New Testament. And there is a servant who suffers in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there is not anywhere in the Hebrew Bible a clear description of who that servant is, although there may be little hints about it in Daniel. And in Jewish tradition, there really are what I would call different axes of interpretation. Two main ones. Was the servant in the past? Is the servant in the present or is the servant in the future? That's one axis. Another axis is, is the servant an individual or is the servant the community as a whole? And there is some textual basis for that latter opinion because this prophet speaks of Israel as God's servant, Yisrael of Diata. And that does uh, suggest the possibility of what some would call a corporate reading of the suffering servant. So you have past, present, future, individual, group, okay? Now then, once you get to both individual and group, you have a whole bunch of options. It could be Israel for the group. It could be all Israel. It could be a particular righteous group. And individuals, it could go anywhere from you know, Moses and others in the past to some contemporaries of the prophet, to the prophet himself, and uh, any number of people in the future, including the Messiah. And there certainly are a small number, but they are there, of Jewish interpretations which understand these passages uh, in relation to the Messiah. But again, you've asked these questions what ended up being a very, very good order. Because you know, <laughs> earlier we had an opportunity to talk about the, multi, the tradition of multiple interpretations within Judaism. And there are multiple interpretations of this particular figure within Judaism. And uh, when, as Christianity develops, and this is really the earliest strands of Christianity or the earliest Christ-believing movement 
then these chapters are used in a particular way, which AJ will talk about uh, a little bit more in a second. And uh, then that removes the possibility of other interpretations. But something that I think that it is important for the broader Christian community to realize is that before the first century of the common era, this text did exist. It was before Jesus was born and Jews did understand it in a, in a particular set of ways and continue, many Jews continue to understand that in ways which are, continu which are contiguous with those pre-Christian understandings. Um, the text is so sufficiently diverse that it can apply to Jesus and does apply to Jesus in various ways when you look at the New Testament. So you think, oh, it's all got to do with the cross, right? He was wounded for our transgressions by his stripes we are healed. Boy, that sounds like the cross. But Matthew uses it to talk about uh, Jesus doing healing, right? Um, so it's the suffering body of Jesus that suffers along with us. And then so it becomes a healing thing. Um, when you get to first Peter, it's advice to slaves. You know, Jesus was the silent suffering servant. So if you're a slave and you're being oppressed by your master, be like Jesus, the suffering servant and don't complain. You know, bad things are going to happen. And Jesus knows what it's like. So, you know, what it's like, just put up with it, which is horrible advice. When you think about it, yeah, mm. be, a, be, a, be an obedient beaten slave. It would not surprise me that the suffering servant, um, again, not a term that's actually used, um, might have had might have influenced Jesus himself. That wouldn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I suggest to my my Christian students is why not double dip? So if you have in the New Testament something that says this was done to fulfill what was said by a prophet, which happens all over the place. Right. And Isaiah is the most popular uh, prophet to get cited. Instead of saying, okay, well, you can put a little check mark next to Isaiah 52 or a little check mark next to Isaiah 7 or next to Isaiah 9 and say, been there, done that. Why not do a both and? Yes, I understand how the New Testament tells me that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, but nothing says the prophecy is no longer of ongoing value. So one finds, for example, in forms of Catholic liberation theology, that Jesus is the suffering servant, but so are other people whose suffering calls a community to account. And heaven knows we have a number of those. And, and they're not suffering because they want to. They're suffering because they're suffering. Um, there are a number of figures, we can name them, um, who, because of their suffering, their unjust suffering, call the nation to account. And then we start wrestling with some of the problems in our own system. So for Christians, why not do a both and? It's Jesus and rather than it's just the Jesus and therefore the prophet's done, we don't need it anymore. Jews will continue to wrestle when we think about, say, 5250, which we don't think about very often. But if we did, we would probably say, oh, that could be so-and-so, you know, like my next door neighbor who had cancer, but the neighborhood pulled together. Um, and because of her, we're now all talking to each other. I mean, there are various ways of understanding this text. Very helpful. Mark, anything else you wanted to add to that? Or is, does, that, does that sound good for that topic? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Let's move to, to one other area with the time that we have remaining here. And uh, again, in our email exchange, um, we talked about looking at, uh, in um, uh, AJ, you have a book, The Difficult Words of Jesus. And in chapter six, uh, it talks about your father, the devil. And there's a quote there from John 8, 44. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. And unfortunately, uh, historically, um, that passage and others have been used to, to literally, as well as figuratively, demonize uh, the entire Jewish race, Im implicating them in the death of Christ. It's been used in for as forms of dehumanization. And let's, let's talk about that and unpack it. How, how has that passage been used and how might we reapproach it? Well, it, it's easy to find how it's been used. Um, I, I would not advise doing an internet search because it will land you in all sorts of nasty right. places. Yes. Uh, but it was a favorite quote of Julius Stryker, who was the, the major propagandist uh, for Hitler and his regime. Uh, it was used by, what's his name, John Ernst, the, uh, the Poway shooter, um, as part of his manifesto. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's still being used. Um, I have twice, although not recently, uh, been asked where I had my horns removed. Once in North Carolina, when I was doing my graduate work at Duke, uh, and once here in Tennessee, where I live now, uh, by nice ladies and, and you know good Protestant churches who had always heard that Jews had horns, um, and they were delighted to find out that we don't. Right? 
um, to pull my bangs back. Um, it, it, so sometimes it gets used in a way that's not meant to be anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, but it comes out that way anyway. Um, so what do we do with texts that are really problematic, like John 844, or much of John 1819, which is the passion narrative, which in mainline churches is read out on Good Friday. And you hear over and over and over again about how the Jews, the Greek term is eudaioi, basically want to pressure Pilate into killing Jesus. And they're nasty and they're venal and they're hypocritical and they're terrible. But that's also in the Bible. So then what do you do with it? So uh, this past Saturday, I testified to um, a commission for the Episcopal Church on lectionary revision to suggest that the Good Friday lectionary might want to be redone. Uh, last night, I gave a talk for the University of Winnipeg on the difficulties of reading the Jews in the Gospel of John. So here's the broader question, and we've got it when it comes to the wipe out the Canaanite stuff and the homosexuality stuff, um, and a lot of really difficult material in the scriptures that we share. How do we wrestle with really difficult texts? Uh, how do we figure out what the, the best interpretations are? How do we make sure that a text that's supposed to be about kindness and compassion doesn't wind up being a text that promotes malevolence and hate? So looking at John's language very, very carefully, sometimes going to the Jewish tradition is helpful because then you can see how to wrestle with texts that you may not like. And what, that's what I want Christians to do rather than just say, well, I know it sounds bad, but it's in the Bible, so I believe in that's the end of it. Um, it seems to me that if we can take statues out of the public square or change the name on buildings, um, because we can't promote what the original name or the original statue represented, then maybe it's time to think a little bit more carefully about what Christians who have a choice in what to read, what they read out on a Sunday morning and proclaim as the word of God. Let me pick up on that. So what do we do with problematic texts? I mean, I would say, I would say and I know this is not going to satisfy many people in your audience, but I think step number one is to acknowledge that there are problematic texts. And I think it is only fair to point out problematic texts in other people's traditions if you're willing to acknowledge that you have problematic texts in your own traditions. To pick up on what AJ said and to return to the model of font size, which I seem to be obsessed with, is, you know, you, I used to use an image of going to Staples, and this is before lots of computers, and buying a case of whiteout and you know, all the, the, the little, all the verses I wanted to white out. But you know, now with computers, I have a much better image. You can't, which is really more realistic. You can't white things out of the Bible, okay? But you could put them in such small fonts, I would suggest, you know, three-point fonts, that you really can't see them and that you don't pay attention to them, which is what AJ is really arguing in terms of the lectionary. And I would just say that there is Jewish precedent for that uh, in two ways. So the Torah is read continuously over one or three year cycle within Judaism. But in the classical period, it was read in Hebrew and between each verse an Aramaic translation was provided. There were certain, certain passages that were seen as sufficiently problematic that they were read in the Hebrew, but not translated. So that's a way of acknowledging that they are there, but they are of lesser importance in some fashion, and they uh, should not influence us in the same way. And similarly, the prophetic reading, the Haftarah, was chosen from any place in uh, the minor or the major prophets. Again, the structure of the, the canonical division is different in Judaism and Christianity. But in rabbinic tradition, there are certain prophetic texts that were thought to be so offensive that you do not read them as part of the Sabbath prophetic reading. You, know, you can't remove them from the text. So therefore, you know, my old white-eyed image was really wrong. But you don't want to popularize them by having them read publicly and then actually translated into Aramaic on the Sabbath. So there really is wonderful precedent within Judaism for what AJ is trying to do within the lectionary 
which really allows us to focus on the most constructive texts rather than on the most destructive texts. But again, I don't want my first point to get lost, that at least from my perspective, it is important to admit that there are problematic texts in all religious traditions, including in one's own religious tradition. Right, which is why I started with that. I mean, we all have baggage. Um, I get very worried when year after year, and it will happen again this spring, uh, priests and pastors write to me and say, how can I give me some advice on what I should do with the Gospel of John every year? Um, well, if every year this problem crops up, whatever's out there is not working. Right? So you put a note in the church bulletin, you give a little trigger warning before the reading. Um, you say you have to begin saying, oh, we're not referring to all Jews. It just says Jews, right? Um, but if you have to keep glossing it over and over again, maybe the time has come to change the reading rather than trying to explain it over and over and over again. Um, and that's what I would like to see happen, at least with churches on the lectionary. If you're in an evangelical non-lectionary based church, um, you can preach on whatever you want to preach on. So if you want to preach on something that sounds really pretty awful, and if you do so by picturing, you know, me in the back pew or my kids in the front pew, um, be really careful what you say. Because you may say, well, it's just what the Bible says. But the, reading the Bible out has caused war and pogroms and genocide and God knows what else. So just be very careful with what you proclaim to the population. Yeah, I, I think, AJ, what you just said right there, it's uh, very close to what I work for the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And one of the things we do is we say, always talk when you're talking to others about another religious tradition, if there's nobody there from that religious tradition, imagine that they were sitting there and, and listening to that conversation. Uh, and, and can you do that in good conscience as you represent and discuss those who aren't there? And I think it's tremendous advice. And uh, I agree with both of you. Uh, we, we evangelicals and other Christians uh, love to take issue with the violent texts in the Quran we often aren't willing to even recognize the violent and problematic passages within our own scriptural tradition. And so uh, I, it seems to me like this is another area where many times Christians approach the text in general different than the Jewish community in that we're not willing to recognize the ugly parts of the Bible, because if we do, somehow we feel like we're, we're not honoring it. Uh, is there more openness in, in the Jewish community to do that? Um, they've had a lot more experience with wrestling so that when there are parts that are quite violent, the rabbinic tradition comes in and tries to tamp it down. Um, and they do so in part because they don't have any political authority. They got no army. So, you know, promoting violence doesn't help them very much. Um, so when it comes to holy war, oh, that's limited to the seven nations of Canaan. You can't bring it forward. You can't do any more holy war. And those um, nations are no longer around. Yeah, they're so. not, they're no longer around or, they never really did it anyway. It's really an allegory for wipe out your baser instincts, right? Or if you're, you know, a more liberal person, you say, well, the Bible tells the story, but there's no archaeological evidence for the conquest anyway. So, um, sorry, there's no archaeological evidence for the conquest. So, um, you know, it never happened and we realize it never happened and therefore we're not going to try to make it happen now. Um, so there are various ways we deal with it. Um, my, my favorite example on wrestling with the difficult text um, is the song of the sea that Moses thinks, oh, I think Miriam wrote it. Um, you know, horse and rider are thrown into the sea, tra-la-la-la-la. Um, and the midrash on this is the angels, you know, they're happy to because it's the Exodus. Um, and they go to find God to rejoice and they can't find God, which is really awkward. Um, and they finally find God and, and God's wrapped in a prayer shawl, which is a little anachronistic, but, you know, bear with it. Um, and, and he's weeping uncontrollably. And the angels say, it's the Exodus, it's fabulous. And God responds, my children are dying and you're singing praises. And God's talking about the Egyptians. In other words, you don't rejoice over the death of anybody because everybody's a child of God. So you've got these kind of midrashic filters that come in to help us. And these stories tend to be inculcated among, you know, all sorts of different branches of Judaism, you know, even the most, most uh, people on the liberal end will know these particular stories. But we don't really have comparable stories to help us with the New Testament, to make sure that we know that, you know, Jesus and, and, and all the Marys and Peter, like they're all Jews, that kind of drops out. 
So that storytelling would be great for the church to appropriate and then start with little kids and say, what are the stories that we tell along with what's in the Bible to help us understand the Bible in a way that's not harmful? Mark, anything to add to that? Say that in one sentence is the Jewish, the Jewish tradition is always the Bible interpreted rather than what the Bible says in a straightforward manner, as if it's ever clear what a straightforward manner really is. And uh, that really allows many of these very difficult stories to be tamed. And I would recommend that the same time that we understand what the stories originally meant, given that we cannot remove them from the text, each religious tradition should be responsible for taming them through interpretation and reinterpretation, because these stories really are dangerous. When, when the psalmist talks about bashing the heads of babies against the wall, which is, you know, when I talk about John and the Jews, that's what gets quoted back at me. Mm -hmm. And I say, yes, um, and, and that's so horrifying that you read it and you should be horrified, absolutely horrified by that. And then you realize um, the, the, the violence of which human beings are capable and it should catch you up short and say, I reject that. I would like to have that same interpretive material uh, applied to the Jews in the Gospel of John or the polemics against the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew. So we don't want to go there. So you recognize the baggage that we all have and the capability of violence that we all have. And then the broader reading of the text, because we all have canons within canons or our 40 point text. You say, I'm not going to go there because my tradition tells me I can't and I should be horrified that this material is there and it's there to make me horrified. That would be a nice reading. All helpful advice. I want to be respectful of, uh, of your time uh, in different parts of the world. And uh, I thank you so much for, for coming. Uh, I could just listen to you both for hours, uh, but we don't have that at our disposal. I'll put a, a link to uh, the book that you two have done. Uh, and there are chapters uh, that go into more depth of what we have discussed here today, as well as in the prior program, The Bible With and Without Jesus. And the guests have been Amy Jo Levine and Mark V. Brettler. Thank you so much for being back on the program. And you will also point a post a link to Difficult Words of Jesus. Yes, of course I will. People and a correct bio for you, thing. an updated yeah. bio. <laughs> Thank you very much. Always Thanks. a pleasure. Thanks for being such a wonderful facilitator. Indeed. Thank you.